Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. My son Haddon is uh, 13 years old, and even though we've got a few years, we are starting to talk about what are we going to do for a vehicle. He's going to drive one day. We're going to need to figure that out, that sort of stuff. Uh, Jackie's real committed to buying him a truck before he gets his learner's permit, a little cash truck or something like that, because neither of us want him to practice in hours. All right, so um, we're going to do that. Or if one of you will let him borrow it, then um, we're fine with that as well. Um, But just not in ours. And so we've had a couple of conversations about this, financially planning ahead, that sort of thing. But it must have really landed on me because I had this dream about it, all right? And so I'm asleep and I have this dream. I I, I go out into the living room and Jackie is like, she's like, get in the truck. I just bought a car. We need to go get it right now. And I was like, what, you bought a car? And she's like, yes. I found this little uh, Ford Ranger. You can tell it's my dream, right? I found this little Ford Ranger and uh, it's great. It's in North Central Arkansas. We need to leave right now. I already bought it. I'm driving. You're going to drive it back. Let's go. She just took kind of, she took charge of the whole situation. I kind of liked it. Um, But uh, she just took charge of this. And and I'm like, well, what about the boys? You know, in my dream. I'm like, what about the boys? And she's like, they'll be fine. Leave them. Let's go. You know, it's like, like we're storming Normandy or something. And we we went and found this truck. Uh, It was great. I told Haddon about it later. And he says, uh, like right in the middle of me telling him, he said, wait, you bought me a truck or you had a dream that you bought me a truck? And I was like, it was just a dream, son. Calm down, you know. Um, so in, uh, in my weird jarring dream, uh, he has a dream and then I smash his dream when I, uh, when I tell him that it's just a dream. The reality world mingled with the dream world in this unnerving, disappointing sort of way. And I bring that up to really ask you this question. What happens when reality is disrupted by a dream? What happens when your reality is disrupted by a dream? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, looking at this very old Jewish literature. We're going to look at that and see where God is speaking to us through that. But before we do, let's, let's all pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We are moved to emotion uh, by the song, by being in our Father's house, by by lifting up the name of King Jesus. God, we are also amazed that even today you have seen fit to show grace, to show mercy to the prideful, to the arrogant, and to uh, rescue this soul this morning. God, I pray that at the conclusion of this service, those who have not yet submitted themselves to you would, that they would bend their knee to King Jesus, and that today they would leave here not full of pride or arrogance, but God, at ease and flourishing in a relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, so the question again, what happens when a dream disrupts your reality? Let's look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. There's a lot going on in this text, but I'll walk you through it. We'll we'll take it bit by bit, so no worries on that. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon. All right, we've talked about him a couple of weeks. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. 
Out of all that text this week in in chapter 4, this verse really grabbed my imagination. I really couldn't get away from it. For a number of reasons, well, I mean, first of all, it's easy to understand. It's, it's, it's something that, that's just easy to read. Uh, there's some contextual, some historic uh, details behind this verse and the next one that really were fascinating to me. But more than that, I felt this verse. And, and I'm going to explain it in a minute. I think we all do. I really do think that we feel what's going on in this verse. Check it out. He says, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. You know, your house or your palace, not everybody, but nearly everybody that I know takes a lot of pride in their home, all right? The place that they live. If you've ever met anybody that uh, custom builds their house, right? They, they had a, a builder build it for them and, and you're walking around their house, they will, sh- they will point out all of the kind of the cool things that they did in their house, little decisions that they made and, and the flow of the floor plan and the color here and, and the color of the flooring and all that, how it all kind of fits together because they take pride in that, right? Even more so if they were the actual general contractor, right? You know, they were overseeing all of that. Um, Harry and Connie Smith are members of our church and uh, they were showing me their house one time and they don't have a tub in the master bathroom. They just have this huge shower, which I thought was kind of creative and cool because I don't ever use that tub in in our shower, you know, or or in our bathroom. And so I thought that was really clever. I'd never seen that before and and really thought that that was neat. And they, they take pride in that and they should, you know, because he oversaw the building of that. And even if you don't, build your house. You know, uh, if you, you buy a pre-bought house uh, or pre-built house, somebody uh, will often take pride in like uh, painting the walls a certain color or extending a room or, or picking out new flooring. You know, people do this. We have pride in where we live because, because there is safety, there's security, there's a little bit of creativity. All of that is mixed up in where we live. Nebuchadnezzar takes this to a whole nother level like a whole other level. There is a lot of historical data outside of the Bible that talks about Nebuchadnezzar. Some of it he wrote, some of it was written about him. And almost always it mentions that Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. He liked to build things, temples and cities and, 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 and gardens and fountains, these sort of things. Nebuchadnezzar was very proud of what he had built. In fact, in verse 30, if you look at verse 30, he says as much. He says this, the king exclaimed. I don't know if he shouted it out from the rooftop or the balcony or or if he whispered this in his own heart. He says, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? That's quite a statement, right? There's a lot of pride wrapped up in this statement. Look what I built, right? Now we shared before, if you've been around the church for a little while, we shared before that I take a lot of uh, probably pleasure more than pride in the, uh, the, uh, my, my yard, right? Keep it right, you know, the right length, all that sort of stuff. I've talked to you all about this. I love mowing the yard. I can't wait to, you know, mow it again. I love uh, taking care of my yards. But let's imagine that you're walking down my street one day and I see you and, and, and I'm like, hey, I notice you noticing my yard. Yeah, right? Does it not display my majestic glory? Could you imagine anybody saying something like that? I mean, some of you are like, I can kind of imagine you saying that, you know. But I would not, you know. It's weird. Nobody says that. I mean, it's a yard. It's a house or whatever. But I mean, on some level, 
on some level, Nebuchadnezzar is standing in front of a, a kingdom. He stands up there and says, this displays my glory. I built this by my vast power. But let me ask you a question. What does that get him? What does his pride and his building, what does it actually get him? Well, this will be shock to you. A lot. It actually gets him some really great things. Remember back in verse 4, he says, I was at ease in my house. I was flourishing in my palace. Ease and flourishing. We know what ease means. That's just, you know, relaxed, laid back, chill, that sort of thing. The literal word means to not have a care. I have no cares. Nothing is bothering me. But flourishing, that's a less common word. We don't use it as much like trousers, a great word, but it's not one that we use as often. It might surprise you that in the Bible, though, flourishing is a big concept. It's sometimes translated prospering or doing well, maybe even blessed or blessed if you grew up in the deep south. Those words are the same concept and the same idea as flourishing. Psalms 92 verse 12 will actually speak of this. And a lot of the Psalms speak of the concept of flourishing. The righteous thrive, that's flourishing, like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green to declare the Lord is just. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This whole concept, this idea of flourishing is in the Bible, all over the Bible. Like I said, you can see it a lot in Psalms. You can see it a lot in Jesus' teaching, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. The idea of flourishing, our human flourishing. Out of all the scholars that I've read on this topic, Dr. Pennington, who's a professor in Kentucky, is probably the best and has a lot of great resources on this concept. This is what he says. This is a summary quote. Human flourishing alone is the idea that encompasses all human activity and goals because there is happiness. There's not merely cultural values or the desire of a certain people or time period, meaning that human, the desire for human flourishing isn't just wrapped up in one time frame or one culture. The desire for human flourishing motivates everything humans do. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing both individually and corporately. In other words, we want what Neb had. We want to be at ease and flourishing. All of us have that in our concept, in our motivation. Your ideal or your dream could look different and probably does look a lot different. I don't know if any of you are like sitting around one day and daydreaming with your fiance and you're thinking, you know, one day, like, what's your ideal house? And you're like, I would love a palace in Babylon. You know, that's probably not what you said. I mean, you might like a palace in Babylon, but that's not the ideal. Your ideal would look different, but at its core, at the root, we all have this desire to be at ease or to be flourishing, to be happy and prosperous, safe and without a care in the world. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's, he's living the dream. Nothing can breach those walls. Nothing can get at him except for one night, there's this crack in the wall that ends up shattering the entire thing. What's that crack? Look at verse 5. It says, I 
had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and the visions in my mind alarmed me. I love the literary jolt uh, that the Bible puts right here in verse 5. As we think deeply on verse 4, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Then we would all walk away from that going, Nebuchadnezzar, you are living the dream. You are living the life that we would all want. And then in verse 5, he says, and I had a dream and it frightened me. It alarmed me. His dream upsets, disrupts his reality. What he was living in is upset by his reality. But what was that dream? What was the dream that he had that is so frightening to him? Picture a giant, beautiful tree. The, the very essence of peace and beauty and the majesty of nature. Can you see it and feel it and smell it and hear it? The scene of like a, a mighty tree that's standing towering above everything else, higher than any other tree, teeming with life and the rustle of wind. Maybe there's the roar of a lion or a panther in its branches, the sounds of birds that are scared into flight, sun streaming through the leaves, the different hues of green as shadows dance with the light and the breeze animates all of it. There's warmth from the sun and cool from the shade. The branches swoop down like these giant arms and these hands, these limbs to lift you higher into its heights. But then suddenly, a divine voice, the voice of God himself with a loud shout, shatters the peace. And the predators run as he cries, tear down this tree, cut it down, murder the great tree, break off every branch, strip its leaves, and grind the wood. Then you hear the crack and the crackle and the crash of that size of tree falling to the earth, and every wild animal flees from it. It is more than sad to watch. It is tragic. It is unnerving. Can you picture that sort of dream? As he wakes up, of course he's going to be shocked by it or troubled by it. He's going to be confused by it. And I think even as I read this, I imagine because of chapter 2, as he calls Daniel to himself, he's upset, he's concerned about this very vivid dream that he has. Even before Daniel says the words in verse 22, you are that tree. I think that Nebuchadnezzar knew that. I think that's the reason that it's upset him so much. It's an unnerving scene to watch, but then to know and to wake up thinking in the back of your mind, if this is anything like that last tree or that last dream I had, I am that tree. Cut down and struck down. The messenger, the voice, the crier in his dream and Daniel leave no guessing as to what the meaning of it is. In Daniel 4 verse 17, if you look at that with your eyes, this is the voice from heaven saying, this word is by decree of the watchers. And the decision is by the command of the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. Daniel, while he's given the interpretation later on, this is what he will say uh, the meaning of the dream is. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time. 
until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone that he wants. God is confronting Nebuchadnezzar's pride with God's sovereignty. God is letting him know who is actually the boss around here, who actually has majestic glory. Remember what Psalms 97 says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the people see his glory. The psalm says that that nature declares the glory of God. So it is ironic, but also amazing and beautiful. And just the way that God communicates that he takes nature, a tree, to confront Nebuchadnezzar's pride. As Nebuchadnezzar stands there on the balcony saying, look what I have built. God uses a tree in a dream to say, I built this. I built you. I can bring you up and I can crash you into the ground at any moment. There is no place that you are at ease or flourishing apart from my mighty hand. I raise up leaders and I strike them down. I alone am majestic and glorious. In a dream, God confronts Nebuchadnezzar's pride with his own sovereignty. And in verse 28... The Bible says that all of it happened. It happened exactly like the dream predicted. It's exactly how Daniel said, struck down by God Almighty, the actual king of kings. So this prideful king is brought low from his prideful position by the majesty of the Lord. And so this all leads us, it all lands for us in a couple of ways. And to borrow the words of the story, I am that tree. You are that tree. We have pride. We swell up sometimes with pride, right? We carry it around. And maybe we don't stand on our balconies and declare, but maybe we whisper it in our hearts in a number of different ways. This sort of pride that lifts us up to the point of God. We have pride in our careers. You might think or say things like, I was the youngest to make partner in the history of the firm the highest grossing sales numbers, fastest case turnaround in the region, 99% customer satisfaction. Whatever it is, we will take this deep pride in what we have done with our career. We'll have pride in our families. You should have pride in your family, but we will make it like a God. We'll hear or we will say things like, so glad my kids don't act like that. If she would just mother that child, he would behave. So glad my wife still looks a certain way or that my husband doesn't speak to me that way. We take this deep pride in things that we have no control over. We have pride in our nation. We have pride in our state. Could you imagine somebody being so obsessed with their state that they take this deep level of pride in it? That would be ridiculous. We have pride in our communities. Sometimes you'll hear somebody talk about how much better their small community is than the other small community. We have pride in our own accomplishments. And maybe, and hear me on this, maybe your pride doesn't flesh out in this deep sense of swelling arrogance. Maybe your pride sounds a little bit more like self-loathing or self-hate. It may sound very different, but in both, the reality is that you are focused on yourself instead of focused on who God is and what he has done. Listen to me. Moses' stuttering and Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance have the same ring to them. 
They are a focus on themselves and not on what God is or who God is. Augustine says that it was pride that changed angels into devils. It was arrogance that brought them so low. So that, listen, and I want to be clear on this. There is nothing wrong with taking a sense of pride in what you do and what you accomplish, of trying to be better than you were before, of leaving the room and the world and your community better than you found it. The problem is when we take what God gives us and knock him off his throne and put that gift in its place, when we start to find our sense of value and worth in something that we accomplished or things that we had nothing to do with, Timothy, or Tim Keller, is a pastor in New York. Very smart guy. This is what he says in relation to this idea. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I love this next line. It says, it undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think for more or I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. The Christian gospel humbles us. So we not only have pride, but here's the sneaky thing. We are trapped in a dream. We are trapped in a dream. You know how Nebuchadnezzar was living the dream? How a minute ago, I think most of us agreed that he was living the dream at ease and flourishing. It's what we all chase after. It is what we all want. He has the dream life to where nothing could bother him. And that's what we are all after, right? That's what we spend. That's what we are motivated by. We are motivated to finally duct tape together a life that cannot be affected by outside circumstances. What does your dream life look like? In your own mind, answer it. Paint that picture. What does your dream life look like? Like a clean bill of health for you and everyone that you love. Bills are all taken care of. No debt. Nice nest egg. Your retirement is secured. Maybe the vehicles are all running well. The house is in tip-top shape. Maybe it's a new house by the lake, by the river, on the ridge, or by the beach. Healthy kids and grandkids. We could use a million different colors to paint that picture, but at the heart of it, at the root of it, it would all be the same basic concept, at ease and flourishing. Some life that is like a fortress where nothing that is trying to get us can get us. Where we have healthy habits, financial backing, and support network to weather all of it. And I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but that is just a dream. If you've been alive for longer than a minute and a half, you realize this, that there are moments where all the stars align. There are days and maybe even hours in which everything feels like it's going exactly right. But that never lasts. And it can't last. We live in a broken world filled with broken people and we are broken. And so how frivolous, how Fruitless is it to chase after vapor, to grasp at at the fog, to try to hold on to something that, as Ecclesiastes says, will not last. These things, humanly speaking, will not last. Nebuchadnezzar is proof that he reached the zenith of human experience 
And in one night, one dream brought the whole thing together. It's like this. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disrupted his reality. And we all need reality to disrupt the dream that we are trapped in. We need to actually see that we are not kings and queens. We cannot build a house or a palace in which we by our own strength and our own minds will be at ease and flourishing that there is only one true king and his name is Jesus. Listen, God loves you too much to let you build and live your life in a house of cards. He loves you too much to let you think that all the structures and systems and support that you have erected around yourself is enough to protect you from what's coming. You need him. So here's the good news. And this is really the good news of this story. It sounds like a story in which there's this great and mighty and he falls and there's just this relentless meanness of God. But that's not there at all. If you read this story, you'll notice this, that it was 12 months between the dream and when Nebuchadnezzar was struck down. 12 months, one whole year. You know what that is? That's grace. That's mercy. God warned him, says, you're arrogant, you're prideful. I'm going to strike you down. 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar walks out to that palace uh, balcony and he declares, is this not my majestic glory? He was offered grace. He was offered forgiveness. God was long-suffering and gracious. And hear me on this. Everybody in the room, listen. Like if you can, psychologically, stop thinking that you're a group listening to me and hear me as an individual. I'm talking to each one of you. If you can hear me and you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Savior, that very fact is grace. That you are now given the opportunity to respond to his mercy. It is not too late. You have not been struck down. You are still alive. You can still respond. He still offers you grace. He still offers you forgiveness. You need only to lay your little crown down at the feet of the actual king. And to receive that grace. It says very clearly over and over in this story that you will be struck down until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over kingdom and men. Until you acknowledge that. The Bible has these twin messages of justice and mercy, judgment and grace. You are prideful. You, you are prideful. You are arrogant. We all are. But, that's a, that's a giant transition there. But God is faithful and just to forgive you if you will turn and trust in him. If you will humble yourself and come to Jesus, you will find forgiveness of your pride. So there's two places to be here in this story. I love this. Listen to me on this. You are invited to look up toward heaven. You are invited to look up. Verse 34 Look at that with your eyes. Look down. It says, but as the end of those days, at the end of those days, Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven. He got his eyes off himself, off his own accomplishments, and he looked up to heaven. Hear hear me on this. Listen, uh, Pastor David and I kind of came upon this as we were studying a couple weeks ago, and we saved it to to give it to you right now. 
In chapter 2, we didn't do a sermon on that, but you could have read it. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is introduced to God in his dream, in that first dream, right? He's introduced to God. It's, 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 uh, it's impressive, but it doesn't change anything about it. So he's introduced to God. In chapter 3, he is impressed by God. When those three men come up out of that fire, he is impressed by what God can do. He's introduced to who God is. He's impressed by what God can do. But in chapter 4, he's invited by God to humble himself. And he accepts that invitation. Listen, the last words of Nebuchadnezzar, the last thing that we read in the Bible by this king is, I, Nebuchadnezzar, starts the story off in verse 4, right? I was at ease and I was flourishing. But at the end of the chapter, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. I assume all of you have been introduced to Jesus, right? You know who he is. You know the name. And almost all of you are probably pretty impressed by him. He seemed to be a very nice guy. He also walked on water, all right? So he's an impressive dude. Even if you don't believe all of that, which I do firmly, even if you don't believe all that, you cannot at all argue this point away. There was a man who walked on this planet and literally changed the course of human history. A poor man who changed. That's impressive. You have been introduced to Jesus He is impressive, but that alone won't change anything about your heart and your relationship with God. You have to respond to the invitation. You have to humble yourself and look your eyes up to heaven and say that I am not king. I am not queen. He is the one true sovereign. He's the only majestic. He's the only glorious. The Bible says in Matthew 11 verse 28, Jesus says these words. That man who changed human history says, would, would y'all come to me? Just come to me. You're trying to build your own righteousness. You're trying to carry this burden that you were not made to carry. You come to me and I will give you ease. I will give you flourishing. I will give you rest. First place to land in this story is to respond, to humble yourself and to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now, come to Jesus this morning. The second place is for you to go and tell somebody about that story. Go and tell somebody. I didn't really highlight this, but it's a really cool thing about this chapter. The entire thing is written in Aramaic. Most of the Bible is written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and the New Testament is written in Greek. This is written in Aramaic. You know why it's written in Aramaic? Because Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember like the ripping limbs off, starting fires, throwing people in fires, your house is a dumpster fire, that guy, kidnapper and and bad tyrant king. He has a whole chapter in the Bible, not because he was the ruler of the world, but because he submitted to the ruler of the world. And then he took his platform, wrote a letter and sent it out to everybody. That tyrant pagan king knew that when God changes your life, you're going to have to share that with somebody. And so you're not the leader of a kingdom, right? But you have social media and you have friends and you have classmates and neighbors, co-workers, 
You have a platform. Use it. Go tell somebody of what God and what Jesus has done in your life. I have this little house plant in our house. It sits on the shelf over there. See, I am impressed by plants. Not super impressed, but like a little bit. They have no muscles or brains and they will move to light. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like if you move it around, it'll move. I don't know how it declares the glory of God, whatever it is. You know, and this, this little house plant sits in our living room there in its little, uh, little palace. And I noticed one day that it was not flourishing. I walked through the house there and it wasn't flourishing. All these leaves were all drooping down. And I, and I had compassion on this house plant. So I moved it over closer to the, the light, to the window, and I gave it some water. And the next morning I woke up and guess what it was doing? It was flourishing, even had little extra leaves on it. It was at ease in its home. It was flourishing in its palace. Now, it doesn't have a brain, doesn't have emotions, but I would imagine if it did, that my little houseplant would sit there in its little home at rest in what I provide for it. That's what you're invited to do. You're smart and strong and powerful. You can build kingdoms and worlds and palaces and houses and you are invited to rest in the sovereign. As a king and as a queen that you are, you are invited to actually rest in the sovereign. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.